Welcome to another limited edition series from Gate Audio Productions. In this four-part podcast, we're bringing to you four conversations with expert panelists from our 2018 Behavioral Approaches for Diversity Conference, affectionately known as the BAD Conference. In these conversations, you'll hear new solutions from the behavioral sciences for making real progress on diversity and inclusion. The BAD Conference was co-hosted with the Behavioral Economics in Action at Rotman Research Center, or BEAR, and we focused on the childhood roots of inequality, going beyond hashtags towards real change, bringing masculinity into the conversation, and how to move the needle on diversity. Gate Audio is produced by the Institute for Gender and the Economy at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management, or Gate as we call it, and I'm Sarah Kaplan, Gate's director. Our goal is to engage current and future leaders in rich conversations about inequalities in our society and how we might address them. And this conference and these conversations are part of that effort. Hundreds of people joined us at that conference, and now we're super pleased to bring it to the Gate Audio listening audience. As usual, if you want more information on Gate, go to gendereconomy.org. And now, on to the show. Okay, we're on to our last set of sessions for the day. Um, thank you very much for, uh, I know our work is done because everyone was so engaged in intense conversation. Uh, I think that's a lot of what we're trying to accomplish here. We're now going to move on to our panel called Male is a Gender 2. Because I think most of the time when people say, oh, you run the Institute for Gender and the Economy, what can we do about women or for women or whatever? And I was like, well, wait a minute. There are lots of genders out there. And as we heard in, the, in, in various conversations today, we need to also think about men and masculinity. Sometimes uh, we get too engrossed in understanding uh, just what the issues for women and I've come to think one of the key solutions is really to focus on actually opening up the box uh, for men. So I spent the 1990s uh, being able to only wear skirt suits and not pantsuits. People thought pantsuits were slutty in those days. I don't know, but for some reason. And now 30 years of fighting later, I can wear skirt suits or pantsuits. You know, here we are. Uh, but men are still stuck just wearing pantsuits. And it's kind of a silly metaphor, but I use it to say we've just spent all this time trying to open up the possibilities for women. And in that time, we've done almost nothing to open up the menu of possibilities for men. And that may be why we are here in 2018 saying, why haven't we moved the needle more than we have? Um, and that's how we're gonna get equality. So um, we have our panel today uh, includes the three people you see here, as well as uh, CJ Pasco, who is dialing in from Oregon, and maybe we'll get her up on the screen. Um, she is heroically doing research on high school boys, and um, I think the research got in the way of her making it to the airport on time. So she's still back in Oregon, but joining us by video. Uh, to be part of the panel, um, and her work is truly amazing. So if we have any technological snafus, it's just because uh, this was a little bit of a last-minute um, arrangement. Well, we're delighted to have her here, too. I'm going to turn it over to my amazing colleague, Numan Ashraf, who's in the middle there, um, who is a, a professor in organizational behavior at the school, and we've recently just appointed him as a faculty teaching fellow at the Institute for Gender and the Economy because one of the things we want to do is a lot of pedagogical innovation, and he's pretty much the person to do it. So he'll be moderating, and I will let you take it away. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sarah. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, 
I believe that it's important to uh, do these things in order of importance. So this will tell you a bit about my priorities, because Dolly did speak about being goodish. This is my version of being goodish. my briefcase here and give you the best baklava you've ever had in your life. That's what, you, what happens when I moderate a panel. There you go. And CJ, I had a box for you. You're not here, but Sarah's mom got it. So I think, you know, she deserves a box of baklava being Sarah's mom. Um, it's a delight to be here. I'm neither the most qualified person to lead this uh, panel nor um, the most trustworthy, but I do want to do a couple of things. Uh, one, I want to spark some debate. So I've asked the panelists to keep their comments uh, to be as brief as possible so we can have real dialogue. And Dolly got us into trouble because she said to us the, at the end of her panel that perhaps the men can talk about stuff. So this is the panel where men get to talk about the fact that male is a gender too. It is my privilege to introduce very quickly the three panelists for the afternoon. We have Professor C.J. Pasco, who is the Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Oregon. She's the author of multiple books and articles. She does amazing research uh, in this area. To my right, I have Umberto Carollo, who's the executive director of White Ribbon Campaign Canada. I've had the privilege of working with Umberto about 13 years ago in launching the U of T campus chapter of White Ribbon Campaign. To my left, we have Jamil Giovanni, who is a, a visiting scholar and professor at Osgoode Hall uh, Law School. He is the author of a really fast-selling book called Why Men Rage, Race, and and The Crisis of Identity. Um, so this is our panel. Would you please join me in giving them a warm welcome here at the Robin School. <laughs> CJ, are you ready to lead us off? Uh, absolutely, yeah. Um, and I promise so to mail I you your box, too. I promise. Okay. Oh, thank you, and and I hope everybody can hear me and see me okay. I, it looks like I'm appearing on the screen, so that's great. Um, thank you for having me and, and putting up with um, the, the, the the technological snafus. Um, I, I'm going to open us up today by sharing with you a scene uh, from the research I conducted for my first book, Dude, You're a Fag, Masculinity and Sexuality in High School. And now I want to just warn you that um, I'm going to relay the research as I saw it, which means there's going to be some, some words that I wouldn't usually say in a professional setting, but, it's, it, but they're the words that the young people I study use. So um, this one particular story comes from uh, when I was in auto shop one day. I, I, I hang out in high schools and I take notes on students' behaviors, and, and this day I happened to be in auto shop, and, and a boy named Jay, a white boy named Jay, was talking, and, and he was very angry that day. He was talking about how he had been found guilty the previous year of sexual assault. And he emphatically insisted that he was innocent of this particular sexual assault, even though the girl said that he had held a gun to her head and forced her to have sex with him. And as a result, uh, he was put under what he called house arrest and had to wear an ankle bracelet for the better part of a year because of, of what this young woman had, had, had asserted. And so he was livid about this, asserting he, could ne he would never rape someone. But later on, as he continued to talk to his friends in class, uh, they began to talk about another young woman at their school who they agreed was, quote, hella ugly, but had, quote, titties, so that made her okay. And Jay said about this young woman, she's a bitch. I may take her out to the street races and leave her there so she can get raped. And his friends all responded, as they often did, with laughter. And I share this story because 
it seems to exemplify a particular moment we're in, especially in the United States right now, where Jay is incredibly angry at being found guilty of a rape he claims he didn't commit. But he endorsed setting up a situation in which other men could inflict sexual violence on a young woman he found distasteful. And so he's really on both sides of this particular issue. He's a good guy, and that means he would never sexually assault a woman. But women are also awful people, liars, and manipulators who need to be put in their place via sexual violence and derisive male laughter. And so I share this story with you to indicate some of the dynamics of masculinity I saw at this particular high school that involved dominance, right? Dominance was central to these young boys' understandings of masculinity, sexual dominance over young women, and physical and, and um, as well as sort of discursive sexual dominance over other young men that usually took the form of, of homophobic harassment. Um, so I'll stop there because I, I want to honor this request for lively debate later. Um, but I just wanted to sort of put out there these two dynamics, the way in which both heterosexuality and homophobia play into contemporary young men's understandings of what it means to be a man in today's world. Thank you. Yeah. Umberto. Thank you very much. And it's a really great honor to share this space uh, with with the the um, the three of you thanks for inviting me um i work at an organization at white ribbon uh that was created two years on the heels of the two years after the uh, uh december 6 1989 uh, Le Col polytechnic Mont uh, massacre in montreal where 14 women were murdered because they were taking space in, in an engineering school so white ribbon's call to action at that time um was uh, n never to commit, condone, or remain silent about violence against women. The organization was created to encourage men and boys to speak out about violence against women. And um, we have our call to action has since evolved. We continue to use, uh, use that pledge, that commitment, but we're also looking at uh, uh, the root causes of that violence, and obviously uh, we believe that to be po uh, uh, the how masculinities are socially constructed and how uh, boys and young men from a very young age are um, uh, pressured to conform to these uh, notions, to these strict characteristics of being a real man, including, um, just as CJ mentioned, uh, dominance, control, uh, uh, anger as the only form of uh, emotion that men are encouraged and allowed to express because anything else is a sign of weakness or um, they're uh, thought of as, as, as women or as feminine. Um, so when we talk to young people and when we talk to adult men, we talk about uh, these constructions of our identities and how they impact our lives, but also how they impact the lives of others around us. And particularly, um, we talk about the disproportionate uh, impact of those constructions on the lives of, of uh, women and girls and, and uh, LGBTQ communities and uh, people of all genders. So. Um, Obviously, we, we, we talk about the importance of promoting uh, healthy alternative forms of masculinities because we need to start de deconstructing those strict notions and uh, encouraging men to, to live uh, uh, much healthier, much uh, more humane, much more uh, uh, empathetic uh, lives, both for themselves and for everyone 
around them. We've done some research uh, recently in relation to men's engagement in the Me Too movement, and I wanted to share that with you, and I wanted to, to, to make it part of these conversations because I think it's, it's uh, really important because men have, for the most part, been largely absent uh, from those conversations as well. They've shied away, and so um, we invited about 2,000 men to engage with a recent social marketing campaign, a White Ribbon campaign, focused on promoting uh, consent and healthy relationships. And as part of that research, we included a question as to whether participants had concerns about their past behaviors in relation to healthy relationships and, and consent. And um, we weren't surprised to find that 61% of the 2,000 men who participated in that research did share that they had concerns about their past behavior. Um, and so when we couple that with recent research uh, by GQ magazine that polled uh, 1,000 men between the ages of uh, 18 and 55 and found that 47% of them had never talked about the Me Too movement with, with anyone. And so if you combine those two stats, uh, one of the questions that I have or the conclusions perhaps that I think we should consider is that many men are not coming forward, they're not talking about these issues, they're not participating in these conversations because they're afraid of what they have done in their past and they may feel that that will come back to haunt them and they may be called to task if, uh, if they start speaking publicly about this. So um, this, this is the, the kinds of connections and challenges that we're faced with in terms of addressing issues of masculinity and working with men and boys. Um, and, and again, from our perspective, it's about addressing, preventing gender-based violence, uh, but we're also wanting to do that as a way to uh, help men uh, better their own lives, because when we do that, then we're helping um, women experience less violence, less oppression, less discrimination. And so the, the work that we do is about encouraging men to think about the uh, actions that they can take er in their everyday life as, um, to, to promote these values and to think first about their own behaviors, their own actions, um, and their own language as a starting point, and then think about the kinds of uh, allies and change agents and change makers that they want to be in their various uh, spheres of life, whether it be in their personal life, in the community, in schools, in the workplace. I have so much more to say, but I'll wait until our dialogue and your questions. Thank you, Bertrand. Jamil. Yeah, so uh, one of the uh, foundations I have the privilege of working with, the Michael Pinball Clemens Foundation, uses a phrase uh, bringing youth from the margins to the mainstream. And I like that phrase because I think it gives a, a really kind of clear and simple way of thinking about, I guess, like my perspective on a lot of these issues, which is that I spend a lot of my time, my work, my research, my writing, looking at young people we might think of as being at the margins of our society. So disconnected from schools, resentful of police departments, um, you know, from, from broken families, um, in positions where they are vulnerable to the uh, many influences out there in the world looking to kind of uh, manipulate a young person's mind. 
And in particular, you can look at that in the context of you know, gang violence or terrorism or extremism and the many boys and young men who have been affected by that but through their involvement as victims or simply culturally influenced by violent movements. And you know, what I try to do as much as possible is to say, okay, we can look at these boys, these young men in the margins, but make sure that we understand there's much to be learned from them and their lives that applies to the mainstream of our society, right? Meaning that if you're going to look at the boys whose lives are claimed by gun violence, for example, or who claim other young men's lives through gun violence, that you can learn through their lives a lot about how our school system works, or our justice system, or the many other things that you know, we kind of centralize in our society and then influences and affects people in different ways across our city, our province, our country. Uh, that is kind of the pursuit, I suppose, that, that I feel like I'm on. And in the process of that, I would identify, a, and, and this is, I guess, a similar thread in what you've heard so far on the panel, that you know, essentialism, homogeneity, is a real problem for young people. And what I mean by that is when, when a boy and young man, and certainly this is not you know, exclusive to men, but uh, you know, for the sake of the panel, I'm gonna be specific with my comments. Um, when they feel like there is a narrow set of paths available to them, meaning they only see other gangsters in their neighborhood, or they only see men behaving a certain way because they might not have a father at home, or they re read online that if you want to be an authentic white person, that means you must hate immigrants, or if you want to be an authentic Muslim, that means you must hate people of other faiths. When, they are, when their minds are filled with these kinds of conflict-oriented ideas, that really thrives on a kind of essentialism, right? That convinces young people there's one way to be the true you. And that true you is not really one that comes with a diversity of options and feelings, as Humberto said, and, and, and emotional um, experiences, but one that is very narrow and tailored to serving somebody else's agenda, right? Whether that's a gang or a terror organization or propagandists on the internet. And that's, that's not just those boys and those young men who fall into those traps that, that I'm sure that resonates with. Surely many of you can think about in your own lives where you might feel like there are pressures that exist in your world or in the world of people you care about where it feels like you're being told you're supposed to be a certain way. And I suspect that, I mean, to address that is what I think both on the you know, kind of grassroots social intervention level is really important. Also, it's really important in you know, the research that we do, the writing that we do, the thinking we do about these issues. But it also requires us to be very mindful of a balance, right? Because the minute you say, listen, young man, there's other ways you can be a man. Don't let people limit your imagination of what masculinity looks like. There's also in that a power you're you know, holding to say, are you replacing that with something else? Right? Are you replacing one form of homogeneity with another? Or are you truly trying to embrace the kind of individualistic open-mindedness that I think a lot of young people require to break free from the many pressures that try to push them in undesirable directions? That is, to me, not just what 
life is like at the margins of our society for young people and, and, and boys and men uh, in particular, but it's also, I think, a challenge that, that everybody relates to both you know, at the margins and at the mainstream. Thank you. I've shared with the panelists uh, three questions that I have, and I want you to get started on the questions you have for them. But before I ask my first question, I want to share with you a, a quick story that comes, from, comes to us from East Africa. So one day, the lion cub says to his mama, the lion, says, Mama, is not the lion the king of the jungle? She says, of course, straight up. What sort of question is that? Right? I'm the queen of the uh, jungle, and your dad's a king. It's OK. Then why is it that in every story that I read, it ends with the hunter killing the lion? She pauses for just one second and says, son, every story shall have precisely such an ending until such time as when lions learn how to write. And, and the reason I, I raise this story right, is because if you look across this panel, you have well-educated, conscious, mindful individuals who are concerned about equity, who see inequity as being fundamentally anti-democratic, who see it as a threat to the engagement of everyone's voice. Let's talk a bit about intersectionality. Let me ask the panelists whose voices are not here, and more importantly, whose voices need to be here around the question of the males owning up to a definition of masculinity that goes beyond either or. Either I am someone who's a sellout, or I you know, agree with a particular notion of masculinity that's defined by somebody else for me. And how do we get those voices out? CJ, can we get you to start uh, us on that, please? Uh, sure. Um, so I, I think a lot about the sort of intersections of different sort of identities and, and sort of vectors of power when I research teenage boys, uh, because I see in schools very different expectations from the institution um, around uh, masculinity for, say, African-American boys and for white boys. That is, the, the sort of tolerance for white boys' particular uh, um, masculinity practices is much, much higher at the, at the school level than it is for boys of color, especially African-American boys. And, and we've seen an uptick in this um, as we have uh, had, in, at least in the United States, a uh, national discussion about bullying and sort of implementing these zero tolerance bullying policies. And, and we've begun to see that those sorts of policies weigh most heavily on uh, young folks of color and actually LGBTQ youth themselves. Um, so, so we have to attend both in the analysis and the solution to these problems uh, to, to identities that are not just sort of one thing, but the, the, are multifaceted. Um, and, I think the other way we need to sort of start to think about it is often sort of what we see or, or the assumptions that are embedded in questions I get asked about masculinity um, are about sort of who the bad guys are, right? That is one question that I often get asked is, is uh, when I talk about sort of heterosexual dominance and homophobia, homophobic practices being central to young men's understandings of masculinity, audience members will ask me, Oh, but you know, does does this vary by class, right? Do we see the same thing with working class boys as we see with sort of upper middle class boys? And the implication is usually like, well, you know, the upper middle class boys know better, right? And it's the it's the working class guys who haven't been educated. That's they're the ones who who think that it's okay to make, you know, homophobic jokes and jokes about fags. And and what that does is it leaves us with a discussion where there are sort of 
good guys, right, who couldn't possibly engage in this behavior, and bad guys, who are the guys who are uneducated, and they're the ones who are engaging in this behavior. And, and I think we've seen even more of that, right, after as, as, as we try to sort of explain how Trump got elected, right? There's this sort of real um, demonization of, of white working class men as the bad guy, right? Um, and, and then sort of this purification of the upper middle class white man as, as the good guy, right? And so if we don't attend to race, and especially the role of whiteness um, in terms of how that can uh, play into who good guys are and who bad guys are, which is a discussion I think we, we need to also have, um, then we come up with policies that just sort of uh, institute other, other operations of power that don't actually solve, solve the problems we're looking to solve. So that's, that's where I'd start. Jamil. Well, you know, intersectionality is like a, a great argument for kind of, I, I think, being contextual and understanding people as individuals as much as possible. I mean, you can intersectionalize yourself to just you um, in the various experiences and challenges that you have. Where I think it's very helpful, though, is to help people check their blind spots, right? So in the conversation about masculinity, for example, I think if you are not looking at race as a factor, you probably are overlooking how much the justice system, whether that's in Canada or the United States or many other countries, shapes the differences in ways that um, boys and men, particularly in low-income neighborhoods, experience their society. Um, the OECD you know, has recently started reporting that there are more women finishing high school and entering post-secondary school uh, than men. But if you looked at, you know, black American and black Canadian communities, that's been a reality for a very long time, in large part because the justice system has affected so many uh, boys and young men of color. If you look at statistics, uh, Stanford University professor Raj Chetty's done some really interesting looks at you know, who earns more money over a lifetime coming from a low-income community, and women tend to out-earn men in coming from low-income communities in the United States by fairly significant margins, in large part because the justice system makes it so hard for many men to get a job after they've entered it. So I think, you know, depending on what you're trying to understand and what you're trying to fix, um, you know, intersectionality becomes an opportunity, I think, to better understand the way some of the systems we're trying to improve and, and you know, hopefully, you know, change for the better, um, you know, affect people in different ways. And, and, you know, the examples I'm giving, I think, are, are certainly not the only ways that, you know, identity and the different, I guess, markers that we carry around uh, as individuals shape the way we experience the world. Alberto. I, I would agree with uh, what Jamil and CJ have, uh, have shared, and I would just add that uh, we need to center the voices of uh, people uh, most impacted by, by, um, by these issues, so people on the margins, and we need to, to hear from youth, we need to hear from LGBTQ communities, we need to hear from, from survivors of sexual violence and harassment and violence, um, and we need to pay attention and, uh, and, and we need to ask the questions, how can we make this uh, better um, for you? So I think when we center those voices and those experiences and, and, and those individuals, then we'll be in a better position to listen and, and find um, good solutions to these problems. I'm curious on the panelists' view on 
the emergent analysis of new power. This idea that we communicate across divides through the emergent technologies of social media, for instance. So we think about the most poignant kind of pushback against gun violence that we have seen in the US recently. It's been the walkouts of high schoolers saying, you know, we call BS on this kind of a narrative. If you look at the, uh, the median age of people that are engaged in the Black Lives Matter movement and you compare that to civil rights movement data, you see you know, the, the younger youth see themselves as having um, either, either they have more agency or more tools that are in some way indicative or symbolic of seizing agency. What's the role of new platforms, media, instruments for us to actually get out of these wonderful gatherings like this one, but to get the message out there and to get voices in here? Umberto, kick us off, please. Yeah, I, I think that it's crucial for, for us. It's a way to amplify uh, storytelling. It's a way for, for us to learn from uh, multiple uh, experiences and uh, um, diverse dimensions of, of these issues. And uh, without it, I think we'll continue to hear from, uh, from echo chambers, right, and speak to echo chambers. And, and also, I think these uh, social platforms also allow um, people to, to get uh, directly involved, individually involved in these conversations, in these um, issues at any point, wherever they, they are. Um, I think the change needs to, p to happen from the ground up and from the top down and, and everywhere in between. And, and I'm so glad that individuals uh, are able to come forward and, and tell their stories and their experiences and that we can learn from it. And, and that uh, individuals can challenge institutions and organizations to, to change and, and to um, keep up with the times and, and the needs to create change. I mean, I'm not very convinced that um, social media platforms are particularly helpful in reaching people who don't already agree with you. Um, I mean, a lot of the evidence suggests that it's actually the contrary, right? That, it, that it, it's very effective at um, kind of rallying people who might be already sympathetic to what you are concerned about. But if the goal is to reach people who don't already kind of share a lot of your basic assumptions, it's, it, it might not be very effective at all. I mean, a lot of the research I do, for example, is how social media becomes an effective tool at influencing a young person and recruiting a young person to take some action. And a lot of it is really just about signaling, right? Like for instance, Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat have been very effective at essentially recruiting young men to join gangs. And a lot of it is because they use these platforms in the same way that um, you know a music video used to function essentially for my, my generation, right? Which is, I'm gonna show off how awesome my life is, how much money I have, and these are the girls that spend their time with me, this is the car I drive, right? This very kind of Hollywood presentation of life. Um, and I think that's kind of the way that most people tend to use social media, that it's, it's really just about signaling what you think is important and it's signaling a lifestyle or choices you make. And surely we hope that other people will see them and say, I want to be like that or I want to participate in that. But it's persuasive value. Um, I don't think there's a lot of evidence for beyond that, right? Beyond who's drawn to your signaling in the first place. I, I mean, there are times I go on Twitter and I'm really like frightened by what I see out there because it makes me wonder whether, whether and like how many people are, are talking to anyone who doesn't agree with them already. Like the, the idea of being persuasive in our politics seems to be a kind of a fading ambition in large part. And, th and that relates, I think, to what Humberto mentioned in his earlier comments about 
you know, about being kind of shamed, right? That there are people who, you know, are out there trying to shame others and people are very afraid of being shamed and consequently you run to whoever's favorable to you, right? You, you seek shelter with those who you think are only going to give you positive affirmations and tell you how smart and awesome you are and you stay away from people who might disagree with you. So do your thoughts? Sure. Um, so I, I love to talk about young people in new media because I've had the, the opportunity to be studying teenagers since uh, the late 1990s um, before they, they adopted you know, new media practices uh, up until now, which you know, we almost have complete um, saturation of the teenage market with, with cell phones. And one of, one of the things that I found is that you know, media is a, a, social media is a, a double-edged sword uh, has two coin sides. I'm not sure my my metaphors are not working this morning. Um, but it, it it presents both resource and resources and risk to young people, right? That is the young people who are at risk offline uh, in various ways. Uh, that risk is amplified online. So uh, sexual and racial minority youth are often sort of more at risk in online spaces, but they're also more at risk in offline spaces. But what we see um, new media doing is also providing a wealth of resources that young people can't get in any other way, right? Because we take young people and we silo them in their schools. They can't necessarily, they don't necessarily have freedom of travel, freedom of movement, freedom of association with, with their friends like we take for granted as adults. But what new media has done is it's really been um, the largest sort of movement towards freedom for young people since the advent of the car uh, in, in the early part of the last century. And so what we see young people doing is going online and reaching beyond the confines of the communities that they, they live in, right? And so what that means for LGBTQ youth is that they're forming community, right? There might be only one other queer kid at their school, but they're able to find community in online spaces, right? Um, and, and what it also means is that young people who are looking for another way of being can find it, right? So when I hang out with young people at the, in, at the school I'm, I'm studying right now, when, when they start talking about gender identity, they come up with this whole litany of identities that, that me, as a scholar of, of things like gender, I, I have to stop and be like, okay, wh what is this? Wh wh what is this other thing? I have to have them explain it to me. And where they get this knowledge is about sort of the different ways they can be in the world is in these online spaces, right? Is talking to other other teens. Um, and so it is this really sort of fantastic resource for young people who are looking for a way out of the boxes that gender traps them in. Um, and I would say the other resource uh, is one that's that's been documented by uh, social movement scholar Ruth Milkman. When she looked at millennial social movements, she finds that new media plays a central role in those. So Black Lives Matter, um, somewhat in Occupy Wall Street, um, the sort of school walkout anti-gun violence movement, um, the anti-sexual violence movement. She makes the case that new media is central to, the, to those movements for young people to, again, to be able to reach out beyond the institutions we sort of confine them to and to contact one another and actually to find like-minded people, right? To organize on a nationwide level, right? That's, that's this gift that new media brings. Now, the last point I'll make is when I talk about new media and young people, often adults sort of tense up and, and, and want to talk about bullying, right? Because we're all sort of so familiar with, with this idea that um, cyberbullying is going to happen and it's going to happen to our young people and it's so much worse than it was before the internet. Um, 
And now cyberbullying absolutely does happen. Sexual harassment happens online. Kids talk to me about it every day. But what we know from good research that's been done on bullying both pre and post the advent of new media is that while we saw a little uptick in bullying rates in the early 2000s, they've gone back down. And so that we know that bullying actually has remained relatively steady um, uh, even in on and offline spaces. And so what we're seeing online with bullying and harassment is really the same stuff we saw offline. We're just able to see records of it now in a way we weren't necessarily able to do offline. Uh, so that would be my, my sort of take on new media. It's sort of both, it's both a resource for young people and it's also a risk for them. Questions from the audience. I'm waiting to see them on my screen. And while we're waiting for them to come up, um, here's a thought that I have. This is not an original thought. It comes from Angela Davis when she was on campus last time. She said something which actually I thought was quite profound for me anyways, around a reframe. She said, this thing that you guys call the civil rights movement, we never called it that way back when. We called it the freedom movement. Hmm. And, and the reason that I think that that, that original, you know, referring back to the original frame is important is because the way in which we frame conversations really matters. How do we frame the conversation for men in a way that's more than just allyship? That's fundamentally about the common humanity, right? That binds us all irrespective of gender, representation, affiliation, or choice. And the reason I ask this question is because more and more we see data coming out that the individual parts of our identities are become more important to us. And this is exactly where I think we need to reframe the conversation. So questions that I am looking to see over here that I can't see. Andrew, help me out. Do people have questions? Have you submitted questions? Are we just too tired? Have we had a carb crash already? I uh, got it. Oh, OK, all right. I thought that was, OK. Thoughts on that? How do we need to reframe this conversation in a way that people can actually feel that this is more than just about being an ally? CJ, want to kick us off on that? Oh, great. Um, you you know, were so good last time. I thought it'd go back to you. Okay. Um, this is a hard. This is a hard question. Um, and and it's a question that so well-meaning men and and young men, teenagers, are interested in answering. Right? How how do they sort of I love this notion of, of the freedom movement, right? So how do they, to use Angela Davis's words, how can they participate in this freedom movement, right? Um, and I think we need to move beyond the notion of ally uh, because ally has become very performative. And in fact, it, I think it's become a shield, right? I am an ally, therefore, anything you're saying that I have done must not be true, right? Um, and so we've kind of weaponized ally a little bit, sadly. Um, and so, what? <laughs> What I would say the first step is, is to develop a sense of empathy, right? Um, there's a, actually a great documentary called The Empathy Gap that looks at, at um, men and boys. Um, and I think without empathy, without this, this sort of practice, and it is a practice of trying to sort of understand how someone else feels in a moment, even if that's not your feeling, without that, it's going to be impossible to, to move forward. Thank you. Yeah, Alberto. I, I would say that even taking a step um, back before we talk about empathy is, is encourage men to do their own self-work, right? Especially um, those 61% of men who may have uh, 
uh, skeletons in their closet that they need to deal with. We, we need to find ways to encourage those men to, to do some soul searching and to find ways to deal constructively with, with their past. Uh, we need to provide spaces where those conversations can happen um, because there is that fear, there is that shame that will prevent many men from coming fo forward and taking further steps. So once that happens and once amends are made, uh, uh, you know, men to think need to think about uh, how to repair those past moments, how to apologize if an, an apology is appropriate or, or um, possible at the time and how to move forward and then take, take further steps. So empathize absolutely. Uh, think about personal uh, behaviors and attitudes and, and actions and make sure that they're part of the problem, sorry, part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And then think about their opportunity to be good role models for the people around them, especially for young people in their lives and in their schools and communities. Um, and also how uh, men can then challenge their peers uh, in the community, in the workplace, and then finally, uh, after that, think about the kinds of change agents that we want to be, how to use our own areas of privilege towards uh, better uh, conditions for everyone, in particular women and underrepresented groups in the workplace. So how can we take a look at our uh, representations in our boardrooms, uh, our policies, how can we take a look at our managers and, and our frontline workers and to make sure that all of those things are working together to create the, the uh, necessary organizational culture change for, um, for everyone to thrive? Thank you. Jameel. Yeah, I guess what I would add is, you know, I, I think you, if, if you're going to be able to empathize with another person to really hear what someone else is saying about their experience, their life. Um, I think you have to also, like, if you can't articulate those things for yourself, it's hard to know how to hear somebody else articulate them. And what, we've, what, what I've seen countless times um, in the research on this stuff is that when you take young men and boys and put them in a, in, in an, and give them an opportunity to learn how to speak about their own emotions, their own kind of inner workings, their own challenges, um, they inevitably become a lot better at relating to everyone else in their lives as well because they know not how to hear that from another person too. So, you know, there, there's um, a program in Chicago called Being a Man, for example, and uh, an economist, uh, Dr. Sarah Heller, I believe her name is, um, did a study of it and, and found, you know, that if you read the quotes from, from the boys who participated in what they call kind of a talking circle, where these high school students would get together, high school students who are in a very high crime, high gang activity neighborhood, and they would get together and have conversations about what life is like where they live and the challenges they experience and you know the, the struggles they have navigating high school and thinking about what happens after high school and what it's like to lose one of your friends to gun violence, the various things that, that they were going through. And, one of, and, and a lot of their comments in re reiterating why the program was successful from, from these boys who were participating was to say, you know, we didn't realize how badly we talked about women before this. And I think that's because they didn't realize how bad they were also talking about themselves and everybody else too. So that program was actually, that, and that study that Dr. Heller did was um, so successful that it wound up being the, the, the basis for 
President Obama's My Brother's Keeper initiative, uh, and, and, and I think some of the best kind of empirical work on these questions. So, um, yeah, so, so, so I, I think that, that, that self-work is important, but particularly because it makes you better, I think, at, at hearing other people, too. Neat. Got questions on the board. Um, Sarah asked the question, I hear more and more often from men expressing frustration at, in quotes, refer, reverse discrimination, often from, in quotes, goodish men. What are your responses to this, these complaints about reverse discrimination? Who wants to start? I mean, I'm happy to start with that one. Um, Thank you. You know, uh, privilege is wonderful, right? It's pleasurable. If you got it. Uh, men's, uh, yeah. And to, so when you have privilege and that gets sort of challenged, um, equality looks like discrimination, right? From that perspective. And so I think we need to, to sort of, again, open up this discussion with men um, about what it, what it means to perhaps give up some of the pleasure of that privilege, right? What does it mean to give up laughing with your buddies at women or weaker men, right? This is actually sort of a form of bonding and, and, and um, a way in which men, psychologists have documented again and again, men, men become friends through the sort of laughing and mocking others, uh, especially weaker others, women, uh, women and, and men alike. And so what does it mean to give up that kind of pleasurable privilege? And why does, why does equality look like discrimination, right? Um, and so again, I think that's opening up this um, emotional dialogue and relating it to these structural inequalities. Nice, thank you. Yeah. Umberto? Sure. Um, I would actually um, go back to CJ's recommendation, initial recommendation that we build on empathy for, for men. And I think this is an area where that can work really well. And, and I'm accustomed to, when working with men, talking about this uh, from the perspective of, uh, well, we all have privilege and we all also have experienced some form of a lack of privilege. So let's talk about, let's do some storytelling. Let's share some of those things. Let's hear from people who've experienced. Let's share our own experiences of, of uh, underprivilege. And, and then try to build some common ground and some empathy and, and, and uh, to, to uh, uh, arrive at a common understanding that change is good for all of us. Um, and that, uh, you know, there, there are lots of people who have been disproportionately impacted by uh, discrimination, by exclusion, by violence, by uh, all forms of oppression. And, um, and, and if we look back at our own individual experiences, then we can empathize with that and we can say, um, I, I want to make a difference and I would I want to create a future where people like me and, and others unlike me will never experience this again. Jamil? Yeah, I, I, I have a hard time with um, questions that I think make it difficult to see the kind of context and specifics of what we're talking about. Because, for instance, we go back to the question we talked about earlier of like intersectionality. And it's like, well, I can imagine a number of situations where a man it feels discriminated against. So maybe, maybe not because he's a man, 
but I feel it's it to dismiss the idea of a man talking about discrimination makes me uncomfortable because I don't know the context he's bringing it up in. I don't know what he's trying to say. I don't know. So to have it in gen general terms is is something that I feel might like to respond to that might do more harm than good. And I, I'd rather kind of I, if someone asked me that, I would want to know what's the example you have in mind, and let's kind of get into what you're trying to describe here. I have a perspective on this, actually, I want to share, and that's this. I think for too long, the work of gender equality, or even more broadly, equity work, has come from a place of shame and guilt for those who've had the privilege in the past. And it's my view that when we actually try to shift organizational or individual behaviors, norms, expectations, and standards from a place of guilt or shame, the outcome is different than when it actually comes from a place of justice. And I think it's important for us to say that the source of our struggle towards gender equality has to be one based on justice, predicated on the fact that we need to enable within organizations and individuals and interpersonally a confluence of conditions under which the fullest potential of the person, however they see themselves, is brought to fruition. And I think that this is where we need to banish this nonsense about the fact that giving rights to one takes away rights from others. But I also do want to say at the same time that we cannot talk about justice unless we talk about sharing power. right? And we have to dismantle those institutional and systemic barriers that have kept power away from parts of our society. We have a question here which says, what is your take on men saying that the Me Too movement will only hurt women because men won't want to interact with women at all because of the movement? It's a question. It's got 15 likes, people. <laughs> Who wants to start with CJ? You're a go-to person. What can I say? You get two <laughs> boxes of baklava for this effort. I'm telling you. Uh, what, I'm sorry. What did, a box of baklava? Is that what you said? Two. Two on good, the line. Great, good, good. I need them. Um, uh, uh, wow, yeah. Uh, I mean, right. I've seen I've seen this on Twitter and all sorts of places of men saying, "Well, we can't. What we can't even be around women anymore." And and I think it it goes back to some of what I've documented in Dude, You're a Fag, right? Which is that these boys' friendships revolve around, in many ways, sexual jokes, right? Um, and that their way of interacting with women is through sort of flirting um, in a way that really emphasizes sort of dominance over women's bodies, right? Um, and so I would see things like, say, a boy and girl would wrestle, and, and the wrestling would often end with the girl being pinned on the ground, just being like, ah, help me up, help me up, right? Um, and sort of laugh, laughing about the fact that she's being pinned to the ground, right? And so that sort of, what starts in adolescence is this process of normalizing sexual violence and male dominance that sort of defines then men's and women's relationships. And it also defines men's relationships with each other where, you know, I would sit around and listen to young men talk about how they ripped a girl's walls or made her bleed in a particular sexual interaction, then everybody would laugh and move on to, you know, I don't know, going to In-N-Out and getting a burger, right? Um, and 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 I share those examples to sort of illustrate the, the kind of everydayness of that type of sexual violence, such that, of course, it makes perfect sense that men would be like, well, now that women are saying this is harassment, like, I don't even know how to interact with them anymore, right? Yeah, that actually makes sense because the way you've been trained as a man is to interact with women from a place of dominance, right? 
Um, and is this true for every man? No. Is this about sort of cultural expectations of masculinity? Yes. And so what it means is, is that we need sort of some larger discussion about this Me Too movement, and we need a larger discussion in two ways. One, how should men, men who, who feel bad, this, this sort of um, perhaps 61% uh, that Humberto sort of has highlighted, which is an amazing statistic, how, how do we help that 61% then respond to behavior that they engage in that they now maybe perhaps understand is not great behavior, right? How do, how do we help them talk about that and understand it and make amends, right? And how do we provide examples for men of other ways of interacting with both women and other men? How can men come together and bond over beers, right, without engaging in sexual banter and sex talk? How can they interact with women in ways that don't sort of replicate these dominance practices? So we need to have both of those discussions. Folks? I, I would say, of course, this is not the time for men to walk away or to decrease their engagement and work together in support of women. This is the time for us to come forward and, and be even more engaged and even more supportive and, and work together to, to change this. Uh, but again, that, uh, the question of, of uh, shame and fear comes into play with this as well. Um, I think for a lot of men, there's still a lot of confusion about what constitutes sexual harassment and uh, what is uh, uh, non-harassment. Non so there I think there's, there's the need to educate uh, a lot of men about that to, to perhaps alleviate some of those uh, fears, some of those uh, misconceptions. And, uh, you know, I also think that this is part of a knee-jerk kind of uh, reaction from... Uh, um, a lot of men, and we have we have to speak out against it. And for us men, male-identified folks, we um, we need to uh, to counter these kinds of attitudes and to say, no, I'm I'm not going to shy away. I I want to see an end to this. I'm going to to work even closely, even more closely with my um, women counterparts, and together we're going to make uh, we're going to change this around in whatever spheres of of influence that I have. Yeah. I think part of this, it's important to recognize how decentralized a lot of these kind of, you know, social media ignited movements are, and that people have very different perceptions of, like, when you say Me Too, and I say Me Too, we might not be talking about the same thing. You can have a very different perception of what Me Too is, depending on what you're reading online, where you're getting your news, and, and I think that, like, before... Like when people say things like this, I think it's really important to try to like, do you, what does Me Too actually mean to you? Like when you are talking about it, what are you referring to? Because that's a really key step to getting to a point where you can have real helpful conversations about this stuff. If someone's, you know, clicking on a hashtag and cherry picking the most kind of divisive, conflict oriented tweets that reference Me Too, and that's their understanding of it, it's going to be very hard to have them on, to, to see the movement in the way that I think we hope they would, which is as a much more kind of justice-oriented movement in the first place, right? So I think that's that's really important because I've seen so much conversation about this, and certainly, you know, the news cycle, uh, you know, seemingly for a long, long time now, has been dominated by stories like this, and you get a really wide range of reactions in part because I think people aren't on the same page in what they're discussing in the first place. So I just want to share with you an anecdote. And will definitely date me in the work that I did around inclusion on this campus when I talked to male faculty members and they asked me questions like 
Well, Numan, do you think I should close the door when I have female students in the office with me? I say to them, dear professor, the problem is not the door. Right. And what I mean by that is, if we don't actually have a sense of three things, the power in the relationship, boundaries, and our duty of care obligation to each other in these professional relationships, we are going to retaliate against anything that seems to actually circumscribe our privilege, back to UCJ's point. Right? If we're required to actually self-regulate more directly, if we're required to behave in a way that takes us out of our comfort zone, that challenges us uh, in our you know, uh, kind of uh, unabridged dominance in that situation, it's gonna be a challenge. So I actually think that a lot of people say, well, the Me Too movement is making me not want to interact with women, have a real problem with the model of interaction they have around women in the first place. Last question from the audience. The people getting diverse in equity, diversity and equity training are often those who least need it. How do we engage those who need training most without them feeling attacked? CJ, back to you. So that's a funny question. Two boxes uh, of baklava, I like this primo stuff. Yeah, I, I'm on a search committee this year here, and and we and all this, uh, and I got an email saying you need to be you need to get di diversity training to be on the search committee. And my colleagues and I all looked at each other and we're like, we're sociologists, we study this, we know this, right? Um, and and we thought we were so great. And then we went to the training, and lo and behold, we learned things, right? So even those of us who who pride ourselves and and devote our academic lives to knowing this stuff. Um, can use this training. I, I actually walked away with some really important tips. Um, and uh, but that said, um, you know we have some really complicated findings about this sort of thing. Um, uh, there's great research at the University of Georgia, uh, and I'm drawing a blank on the scholar's name, unfortunately, um, that looks at sexual harassment uh, prevention training, for instance. And what she finds repeatedly is that, uh, for men who are already prone to endorsing um, sort of sexually harassing behaviors, that training makes them uh, sort of strengthens their belief in the in the rightness of those types of behaviors. Right. In other words, sexual harassment training has the opposite effect with the people we would hope it would have the best effect. And so I think we need on the one hand, we do need to mandate these sort of trainings for everyone, but on the other hand, we actually need to look at the co the content of the training um, and to do sort of evaluations, very careful evaluation studies to look at the outcomes of these sorts of trainings because we don't want them to have these sorts of unintended consequences. Very quickly, Jamil. Well, I think first off, what I would suggest is, uh, I think the language we use is really tough. If you're not in, if you're not already in the scene, it feels kind of exclusive. What I mean by that is like, there's a lot of terms that get used in these conversations that I think the average person does not hear and would have a hard time feeling like they're supposed to be in the conversation, given that these are words that they don't really know how they're being used or what the meaning of it is, number one. Number two, I mean, whatever we might think, and certainly I imagine in a room like this, there's a, you know, a lot of diversity in our politics and our ideas as there should be. But like, I think it's really, you have to be careful with making like really sweeping statements because however just you might think they are, I think it makes people uncomfortable and it feels like you're telling them you don't really want them to listen after all. Like when you start a sentence with men are, men do, 
right? Just like women are, women do, black men are, black men do. Like these kinds of, of phrases are very like, I mean, and, and maybe this is like, you know, the work I do, which is with particularly, you know, um, you know, people who have multiple identities stacked upon each other and experience our world in very unfavorable ways at times. But I think that it's a, it's a really uncomfortable way to talk to somebody. And, and I would say if, that, if your goal is, as I met when I was talking about social media, if the goal is persuasion, I'm not sure that's how you per persuade people if, I, if we're being real, right? I mean, that's a different objective than being what you think is right, right? Because you can be right in a way that's persuasive or you can be right in a way that makes you feel best. And I think that is a challenge for any activist to figure out whatever you're trying to change inside of a company, outside of a company, it's how do you be right? And what is the way that it accomplishes your, your real objectives? So that's the second point. And then I, I guess the third point is, and I think we've touched on this like multiple times, but it's so important that I, that I think it's, it's, it's worth mentioning again, like having space to have real conversation is, is critical. I see it in the lives of young people all the time, but even in, you know, the professional environment, even among, you know, the oldest among us, it's, it's, it's really important to be able to carry whatever assumptions you have, good and bad, and to be corrected, but you can't be corrected if you don't even know how to share what you think. And I see so much self-censorship, and I'm gonna sound like such an old guy talking about like social media this way, but on social media, they, you know, this idea that you, there are just these like, these, these, these mobs waiting to tell people how horrible they are if you speak in a certain way, or if you say something the wrong way. And I think that it creates a really toxic environment for people to be able to share what they think and be shown that maybe that's not the right way to think. But if I can't even show you what I think, how are we gonna know what I need to be taught? And if the goal is to provide training to help people, then how do you know whether your training is working if you don't even know what the people you're trying to reach really believe? I mean, that's a, that's a real problem, I think. Um, so yeah, those would be the main three things I'd say. Alberto? Very quickly, I've uh, for the past uh, year and a half or so, I've been providing uh, uh, training uh, barbershop uh, sessions, actually, for the United Nations Department of uh, General Assembly in, in New York. And, and so these sessions are with men only, and they're in support of the uh, UN's new uh, gender parity uh, strategy. And one of the approaches that I use is, is I create uh, um, what I refer to as uh, gender transformative uh, space. So it's a safe space where men can open up about these issues, can, can raise these kinds of questions about, you know, am I going to lose my opportunities and so forth. But then it, it and, then, and then the next step is to challenge that. So through empathy, through storytelling, uh, through um, uh, vulnerability and, 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 and creating that kind of space, I believe that uh, we can change these kinds of narratives. And then bring those men together with their uh, uh, women, women-identified colleagues, and, and then talk together, plan together how um, they can be supportive of, of, uh, of that particular strategy. Clearly a conversation that needs to be continued. Will you please join me in thanking our panelists this afternoon. Thanks for listening to another Gate Audio production podcast. 
To continue these conversations, GATE will collaborate with Rotman's TD Management and Data Analytics Lab to host a new conference called Gender Analytics Possibilities, or the GAP Conference, on April 27, 2023. At the GAP Conference, you'll join more than 25 speakers and hundreds of participants to explore how to use inclusive analytics to generate innovative products, services, and policies. We'll be talking about topics such as decolonizing data and design, inclusive product and service design, new trends in financial services, creating inclusive contracts and legal practice, and revolutionizing sports analytics. Check out thegapconference.com for more information. That's thegapconference.com. Stay tuned for more Gate Audio episodes.